Justify prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgos and Gupta In recent months social media has been rife with high profile academic kerfuffles three academics accused vikram sampath of plagiarism leading sampath to go to the delhi high court alleging defamation though the high court did pass an order in his favor a uh, website of audrey trashke continues to carry her allegations of plagiarism since the stay order didn't apply to it several commentators weighed in including to question those who had reviewed sampath's book or provided a quote for its blurb McKinsey Fearston also had to withdraw from the Rhodes scholarship after a media campaign found that she had misrepresented her growing up years to deceive her way to getting the scholarship. The New Yorker recently carried a quite wonderful long form piece going into the travails of Fearston's life and the seemingly slipshod treatment she got from UPenn as well as the Rhodes Trust. Our discussion today is neither on Sampath nor on Fearston, but a much larger issue of the one the role of social media in our lives particularly in our quest for truth and second what the role of universities should be universities at the end of the day are supposed to be harbingers of truth seeking so what is the role of the university in this age of social media joining me today in this episode of justify is faisal devji professor of indian history at st anthony's college university of oxford faisal as always lovely to have you thank you aga so great so let's get started since you're a historian the internet is in some sense uh, the new public square right uh, it's where people can talk and express their views uh, was the public square really ever a free place or was it always dominated by the powerful well i don't think it was ever a free place nor was it meant to be uh, there were uh, various kinds of hoops that you had to jump through uh, to become a participant uh, of course in its earliest incarnation in the greek agora uh, you had to be a free male uh, to inhabit that space and then much later on including in india's later colonial history uh to actually participate in say elections uh you had to possess certain kinds of property qualifications uh, and that of course was uh because uh, uh the law considered uh all those who were entrusted uh with speaking for and changing their societies uh, uh need uh, they considered that such people needed to be fully invested in those societies and one way in which you could make sure that that was the case was by requiring educational qualifications or property qualifications of course this looks and is highly discriminatory from our point of view and so when the indian republic finally emerges all those restrictions are abolished but that doesn't mean uh that there are no preconditions the problem with the internet uh is that there seem to be no preconditions at all so in order to uh go to court for instance you should though in india this often doesn't work in this way uh uh you should meet a certain kind of um uh threshold your case cannot be simply vexatious uh in order to enter parliament in order to write in a newspaper uh there are certain preconditions uh but on the internet there are none uh and in a way that new public sphere has now washed over all the others and all the institutional forms which had once defined public space but in some sense the fact that you say that there are no preconditions while that's obviously factually correct as in except for you know signing up with an email id or whatever else uh identification you need to provide as in there, there's nothing else that you have to do uh but would that not also hold the promise of a more egalitarian space as opposed to the agora where you had to be a free male or or a, a whole range of public platforms particularly universities where which is kind of a qualified public space where you do have to be of a certain standing to be able to get a platform uh 
the internet doesn't require all that. So in some sense, don't you think that it is, it is egalitarian, uh, that it doesn't have these threshold conditions? Yes, of course, this is its self-proclaimed promise um, that you know, it's going to open up the whole world to a kind of democratized uh, um, uh, imperative of free speech, of uh, discussion and all the rest. And to some degree, it has done so. But of course, the drawbacks uh, are also very, very evident now in terms of hate speech, incitement to violence, um, um, destruction of reputations, etc. And I think one reason why this is the case is because, not because of the lack of regulation so much, but because unlike the Agora or uh, indeed, even in old time, in, in in the old days of the 19th century or the 18th century, then certain kinds of newspapers, uh, etc. Certainly, the court, uh, the internet is modeled. Its freedoms are modeled on the freedoms of the market. Uh, it doesn't really have a political, ostensibly political purpose, except in a metaphorical way where you can just say, oh, we have democracy. But of course it isn't. Democracy has its institutions, it has its rituals, and it has its forms. Uh, it's no accident that the idea of free speech, which dominates uh, discussions about the democratic potential of the internet, are modeled on the idea of free market. Uh, and the two, I want to argue, have become indistinguishable. Uh, it is the market and market logics uh, that govern both these spheres. Uh, and the two spheres have in, indeed become one. When you think of the free market, there's something mystical about it. You know, it has supposedly an invisible hand. If you let it all go, it will sort itself out somehow. Um, it does require certain parameters, of course. So there are certain things that are not allowed. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, falsely manufactured products, uh, you know, um, um, products that can harm people, um, theft products, you know, obtained by theft, all of these kinds of things, of course, define the parameters of a so-called free market. And in, 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 in terms of free speech, you have similar ones. So defamation, libel, uh, things like that, which are meant to um, uh, create the space of free speech. The problem is uh, that it is, if you will, the desire or popularity uh, of any particular uh, product, commodity, statement, idea that counts, not any form of disciplining uh, uh, these ideas and words and statements uh, or submitting them to a kind of rigorous uh, examination. Uh, so, and the free market sometimes works like that as well in countries like America. So the, the, the logic of the market, as far as the internet is concerned is very much to ensure that there is more speech because more speech means more engagement and more engagement means more advertisements and more advertisements means more revenue. Uh, so as a result of that, what seems to be happening from a political standpoint is that the middle seems to be squeezed out. The more extreme you are, uh, the more engagement your views, uh, your views get, as in the more traction it receives, and then it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling kind of cycle. How do you see this, this development where the middle seems to be squeezed out because of the polarization uh, that, that is a byproduct of, of the internet? Yeah, that's quite correct. Um, and what internet debates and discussions do is to um, uh, you know, is to um, foreground extremes. Uh, so they make a kind of market choice possible very clearly. You have either this or that, and maybe there's a third thing as well. But these choices simply mimic political choices. Uh, they are not, in fact, political choices. Uh, a, a political choice or a political opposition or conflict is requires generally in a democratic system mediation. That is to say, uh, it requires a conversation, it requires debate, it requires compromise, it requires finally agreement 
of a certain kind. Here, the marketization of the logic of uh, opposition or polarization requires only one choice over the other. Uh, it dispenses with mediation altogether. So it mimics, as it were, the political realm. It doesn't really represent it in any fashion. Uh, and it mimics it, as I was saying, for quite different reasons and out of quite different motivations because it's algorithm driven, it's popularity driven in this way. Uh, the more as it were, extreme you go, the more suggestions you get for even more extreme content uh, in advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So we know the, the working, the coming together of, of algorithms uh, and of constituencies uh, follows a logic which is actually not really a political logic stricto sensu, though uh, it perhaps is impossible in our day to separate those two things out because one, of course, tells upon the other. Absolutely. And when you think of mediators as in the internet, I mean, on the internet, then I think the initial sentiment is that there are gatekeepers, right? It's not as if it is a space shorn of mediators. Uh, and, and some of the large tech players, uh, and particularly, let's not talk about the whole of the internet, let's talk about media uh, on the internet, as in a lot of information that we consume, whether it's uh, news or other people's views, is perhaps mediated through two or three large corporations, as in whether it be Meta, Facebook, Google, or Twitter, uh, it's sort of largely a lot of uh, information is consumed through the channel of these uh, of these gatekeepers, and there, as a point that you made, in the sense that the the market mirrors politics. As in, yes, it mirrors it in the sense that there are there are mediators, but here it seems as if this is flipping mediation on its head, because you've got these gatekeepers who are instead of wanting to find common ground are more interested in driving you apart. Um, and, and so there is a kind of political logic to it in some sense, uh, but that political logic is, is, is completely contrary to how we think of politics as oppositional forces mediated by institutions. Exactly. I mean, what do these mediators do in fact? On the one hand, their role is censorious. So, you know, you can't say this. So there, this gets back to the question of what are the parameters of free speech, just as what are the parameters of the free market. Uh, secondly, of course, uh, what they do is fact check. Uh, you know, this is false. Uh, so there too, you have, as it were, a kind of invocation of parameters, but that's about it. So, you know, it doesn't, uh, the mediation is not mediation in this sense. Um, and what we have begun to see, of course, for a long time now, is the arbitrary often way in which these kinds of censorious and fact-checking mechanisms are deployed uh, through algorithms, I'm sure. So, um, uh, you know, since we're in the middle of this dreadful war in uh, Ukraine, you know, I've begun to notice on social media that not only, of course, have all Russian sites been banned, you can't even access them, but even the other day, I noticed an article in the New Left Review, uh, which is a British publication of you know, longstanding, was marked as being potentially a source uh, you know, owned by or funded by the Russian government, which is entirely false. But it had to do with the content of the specific article in the New Left Review. That is a kind of arbitrary and purely political or politicized, uh, as it were, form of uh, uh, of uh, weeding out content uh, uh, from the internet. So one can't even really trust these big companies and these uh, providers uh, to do the job that they claim uh, that they're doing. And I think we'll see more and more of this. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the regulatory push has of course uh, begun. Uh, there is a, this is the case uh, in Australia, this is the case in Europe, now in India, that there is a move towards treating these so-called intermediaries as publishers, right? So if you are going to be doing some form of censorship, you're going to be doing some form of fact-checking, then you might as well have the responsibilities that publishers do. So you know that you will not carry defamatory content. And while that 
may mean a very different kind of internet from the one we think of now where everyone can say whatever it is that comes to their head sitting on the can. Uh, it will be a, perhaps a different kind of internet. But I think there is one is that is that regulatory push, which, which, which I think has started and, and, and I think will we'll only increase because it's not just an issue uh, of, of regulation, which makes it sound a little piddly, but I think it's actually an issue of competing sovereignties of the state vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the large big tech corporation. Uh, but let's keep the regulatory side aside uh, for the moment. Uh, and I think that the key points that you raise in terms of what these corporations are doing and the, the fact that they are doing it arbitrarily as it has implications for our discovery of truth. Uh, so if you want to take an example, uh, Donald Trump's accounts, whether Twitter and Facebook were uh, perfectly live during the course of his presidency, uh, there was nothing there. It was only when he was a lame duck president that he was losing that yes. uh, the companies decided that what he was posting was uh, opposed to their standards. And that was a case of non-automated decision making for yes. sure. Uh, some, it was very much not just an individual, but a very senior individual in those organizations who I imagine would have taken those decisions. Uh, but it seems to me that this choice that is being made is being made for reasons that are very far away from the quest for truth or the quest for information, but are being made for very specific self-serving purposes. Mm -hmm. So given the fact that it is our, our received wisdom that uh, more speech means more possibilities of reaching the truth, uh, what in your view is, where is that sweet spot where we ensure that we have speech but not speech that is that, that is so patently false or so patently driven by extraneous reasons uh, that that perhaps is better off not having that. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of Gandhi uh, because, of course, Gandhi, whose entire life was dedicated to the truth, in his understanding of it, thought that such truth actually required not more words but fewer words. <laughs> You know, silence was of the essence of truth in his understanding, uh, because he realized already, and Gandhi, remember, is one of the earliest celebrities of mass media at the time, which is to say both just newspapers, but also newsreels that, uh, you know, he was one of the early heroes of American newsreels, for instance. Um, uh, and he already saw the... Uh, the kind of very questionable ends to which publicity uh, uh, was directed, even though he was himself a master of publicity. So there are many ironies uh, folded in here. But he understood that silence sometimes communicates uh, much better uh, than speech. Uh, and indeed, the whole uh, uh, theory of Ahimsa and Satyagraha had to do with self-sacrificial action uh, in the public sphere, it had to be seen, but it didn't actually be uh, voiced. Uh, it often had to be silent, as in Gandhi's own days of silence, his pasts and other forms of self-abnegation. So here is a way you can think about actually occupying a public realm or public sphere, uh, which is already, as it were, fully mediated by the mass media of that day. Uh, but not foregrounding speech. And that is really very, very powerful. Uh, and we see instances of that to this day. Often it's an image. So the image of uh, the young uh, Syrian refugee island Kurdi washed up on a beach, a child, you know. Uh, uh, and there are other such images, uh, but they are increasingly rare because they're drowned out by excessive and extraordinary speech. Uh, an extreme speech. Uh, so I think we really need to rethink the way in which, as it were, uh, the public um, is constructed uh, and how public attention is both driven uh, and um, uh, uh, sort of put together, if you will, as, uh, as public debate. And at the heart of it, in some ways, is silence. So if you think of our political lives, for instance, it's no accident 
that are the heart of democracy, which is supposedly driven by speech, uh, you have the secret ballot. Uh, at that penultimate moment when you're making your choice, no one can see it. You're not meant to say anything about your choice either. It's conducted in secret. Now, of course, this is in order to prevent you from being influenced by external forces. But what is the public sphere if not a set of external forces of this kind? Uh, that the, the, the individual here and the individual decision, individual integrity is all important and must be preserved. And in a way that is only possible by silence, by instituting silence. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that you know, silence can be somehow demanded of people. It certainly cannot be demanded on the internet, but I just want to put into question the excessive valorization of any and all speech without recommending censorship uh, uh, in any way. Uh, those of us who are committed to uh, democratic forms, norms, and procedures, I think must think more uh, widely about them and what they entail. No, absolutely. And I think the voluntary silence on issues as opposed to a compelled silence could itself be a very, very powerful statement. Um, and, and, and I think while it may seem uh, extremely at odds with the way in which we think of the internet and communication on the internet, but perhaps this is something that uh, could be a research topic to look at on silences on social media. And have there been powerful silences that have communicated more than five vitriolic posts? But I think that gets us to segues to, a, to the issue of the role of universities. Uh, because universities have been traditionally seen as platforms of knowledge where we seek knowledge for knowledge, the sake of knowledge, for dissemination of information, for dissemination of new ways of thinking, for discoveries, uh, and generally to, to advance humankind and our understanding of things. Uh, now, obviously, universities are in a difficult place with social media, given the fact that social media is loud, it requires immediate action, uh, it's, it's kind of contrary to the slow and reasoned deliberation that methods taught at a university would necessarily entail. Uh, so, and I spoke about two examples right at the beginning in terms of uh, universities and academics and how they choose to respond to what's happening on social media. Now, with the proliferation of views on the internet, given the fact that the search for truth is a bit harder, how do universities deal with, say, take allegations that are made against faculty? We've seen a lot of allegations made, particularly during Me Too, against several faculty members of various universities, with universities following very different approaches. Uh, it could be allegations of plagiarism that, that are made against faculty members or students, or it could even be student protests on, on certain issues. There were um, student protests in Ashoka University as in about Kashmir, which led to Ashoka silently getting rid of some professors or one professor, I'm told, uh, this is not verified, uh, but it seems that universities are still feeling their way around how to deal with publicity, particularly unwanted publicity on social media. In this kind of marketplace of you know, overly free ideas and views, uh, what, Faisal, is your view on the role of the university? I think, you know, it's a fast-changing role. Uh, and here, the as it were, benchmark is set by the United States, uh, especially with the coming in under the Obama presidency of of something called the Title IX procedure. And that is uh, you know, a set of rules which, uh, which allows or indeed compels universities to examine allegations of, for instance, sexual harassment, um, mostly uh, as perpetrated allegedly by faculty members. Now, one of the things that's happening here, and of course, the various forms of this that replicate themselves in the United Kingdom and Europe and other countries. Um, but if you will, the American one is the gold standard in a very bad way. I think it has done nothing but uh, uh, harm uh, in, in the US, not because uh, there should be no disciplinary procedures, 
for such issues, but because the burden of discipline has been shifted from the state and from institutions of justice to often private uh, uh, institutions like universities, which are driven by other kinds uh, of criteria and motives, and which are unable to, uh, by the very fact of their structural uh, setup, deal with these kinds of issues uh, professionally and without conflicts of interest. Um, so here we have a, a kind of a wonderful example of how neoliberalism works, where you marketize everything, including justice and discipline. Uh, instead of allowing people to go to the police and the courts, both actions which require a kind of bar you know, you need to meet a certain level of evidentiary uh, proof, et cetera, in order to be considered even. Title IX and other such university bound procedures seem not to have a bar at all. Uh, and so they are open to vexatious claims and accusations. Uh, furthermore, university procedures tend to be obsessed by confidentiality, yet these kinds of uh, accusations and claims uh, tend to be made publicly in social media, in the print media often, or television media, and therefore impose huge amounts of pressure on the university, which has in the meantime itself become a neoliberal institution dedicated to maintaining its market reputation. Uh, and so it will settle or it will throw the ostensibly offending student or faculty member uh, under the bus in order to maintain its reputation. So every, all kinds of things have been broken down in this manner. Uh, the university's role has been broken down as a guardian of a certain kind of disciplined uh, form of truth seeking. The courts and the police as the ostensible guardians of, uh, or the first line for uh, any uh, accusations of criminal uh, uh, behavior, uh, and the idea of confidentiality itself, uh, which once it is broken, can no longer be as it were understood in terms of uh, a careful consideration of the merits of any particular case. Uh, in addition to this, of course, universities are premised upon judgments and distinctions of merit. It's not a free-for-all. It's not that anyone can say whatever they like. That's not how a university operates. It's a most hierarchical institution. It awards uh, uh, you know, degrees and you know, grades of degrees on the basis, ostensibly, uh, of, uh, uh, of hierarchy, of a hierarchy, hopefully of merit. Uh, and so that way of thinking is also being battered by these uh, claims and desires that anyone should be able to say whatever they like in a university space or university setting. Uh, and this is highly problematic and universities in the United Kingdom, for instance, are now required by law uh, to refuse the, that procedure often indulged by students called no platforming, mm. uh, you, know, where, you know, where you refuse to entertain someone whose views you disagree with. Uh, but of course the university is precisely based upon ranking and hierarchy in order to determine what counts as truth. So how are both these kinds of things to be entertained within a university setting? And it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, but I think the fundamental dissonance that you're pointing out is, and, and sort of this came out with the internet as well, and now coming out with the university, is the fact that the logic of the market is in often, and I want to not overstate this claim here, is, is often not aligned with our quest for truth. Right. And I think that the market has its own logic. And with universities, as you said, as in whether it is QS rankings or REF or whatever else it is, I mean, it has its kind of own logic of what it rewards as, as performance. And 
And obviously, there are cases of, of this nature, which is allegations of plagiarism or sexual harassment, are would, would, would affect that, as it would, would definitely affect that. So just sort of thinking ahead, given the fact that the logic of the market, and if we assume for the sake of this conversation, that the logic of the market for now is here to stay, though there will always be uh, pushbacks uh, from various directions that will emerge when that logic becomes uh, all pervasive. Uh, if we assume for a moment that the logic of the market is here to stay, and that the logic of the market is, is, is pushing universities to ensure that their market value remains untouched. And at the same time, you're operating in an environment of greater polarization, uh, where people want to know very clearly whose side you're on, black or white, as you know, there are, there are no shades of gray. In terms of the future of universities and academic work, uh, do you see the polarization that we see in our polities, and saying it loosely, it's not all polities, but a large number of countries, whether it's India or the US, or the UK, those parts of Europe, as you, you do see a very clear polarization that's, that's taking place amongst the polity. Do you see this polarization amongst the polity affecting universities in the sense that in the future, are we looking at conservative universities and labor universities or BJP universities and the left-wing universities. Uh, I know it sounds sort of very provocative, but I want to put it provocatively to you. Are we thinking, are, are you seeing that people are going to go in that direction because that's what the market then will demand and you know exactly who your consumer is or how else do you see this progress taking place? You know, that's, it's very interesting you say that, Olga, because of course um, uh, that in America that seems to have happened in some cases. But that, of course, has to do with the particular states, the provincial states in which universities are placed and the general political debate and atmosphere of those places. Uh, you know, they are religious universities and they are non-religious universities. Uh, in Europe, it doesn't work in the same way, nor in, in the UK. But uh, in all of these cases, uh, you have, uh, if you will, attacks by outside either political actors or other kinds of actors on the university precisely because universities are not generally polarized along political lines. You might say that faculty members of any particular university uh, you know, tend to be either liberal or, but they may not. Uh, but that is not the same thing as saying that universities are split down the middle in terms of their uh, political oppositions. People might vote for different parties, and they do, uh, but they can still, as it will come together and work together uh, and research and talk and uh, administer the university together. And that is what presents a huge threat to the general political culture and the general culture promoted by social media, which is about, as it were, extremes and polarization. And this is not the same thing as making an argument for centrism or making an argument for liberalism as, you know, can't we all just get together and without the liberal center, uh, you know, you just have polarization. That is not the argument I'm making. The argument I'm making has to do with the capacity to actually do your job as an academic or as a student or as an administrator in university to allow that institution to function, uh, whatever your political views. And that is what poses a threat to this pervasive culture of um, virtue signaling, uh, uh, you know, extremes in identification, refusal to talk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way the university has come to be in the eye of this particular storm because it's one of the few institutions remaining uh, uh, which has a public face, uh, that doesn't seem to be operating in this manner. In the past, of course, we used to think about universities being a threat from outside actors, such as states, you know, authoritarian states or dicta dictatorships, et cetera. Now we're coming to see that universities, universities are also threatened. The state has not gone away as a threat, are also threatened by other kinds of parties, both political parties and if you will, uh, groups, uh, uh, and public opinion mobilized for certain kinds of purposes. 
And the university for many of them and its procedures have been rendered illegitimate already, even before any controversy erupts, which is why the provisions for confidentiality are so rarely restricted. I've seen that at my own university. Um, uh, because of course, you have already assumed uh, that they are driven by special interests, that they won't work, uh, that they are partisan and all the rest. Nevertheless, you go through them. So there's a way in which even the entry into university procedures is destructive. It's meant to destroy those procedures because it is supplemented by a kind of ever increasing pitch of outrage in the print media, in social media. Uh, and all of this, of course, not only destroys the, you know, the structures of the university itself, but makes it ever more like a market player, like the organizations or corporations you described, which entirely opportunistically uh, decide when to remove someone from uh, you know, Twitter, in this case, the, you know, former President Trump, or you know, when to uh, say that uh, you know, TAS or Izvestia or anything you know, can no longer be accessed because it's Russian government uh, propaganda. Uh, That's and, right. yeah. and I think you're right in saying that the university is kind of the, perhaps the last bastion that doesn't always follow this logic and which is why it's also in the, in the eye of the storm. Uh, and in India, of course, as in when we think of universities in the eye of the storm, we think of uh, the Jawaharlal Nehru University. And if I were to play devil's advocate for a moment, I think the argument would be that it's not as if it was the it was the last bastion of nuance and method. It was actually seven decades of capture by a particular ideological viewpoint. And perhaps the methods today may not be as agreeable, uh, but what is happening in the last few years is essentially a reversal of that process and uh, uh, trying to ensure that the, that, that the university, I guess the claim will be made from a certain point of view of fairness, uh, but, but the, the actual claim will be that, you know, we are trying to ensure that there is, uh, there is an alternative viewpoint that can be expressed and not only one particular school of thought. Now, Given that, and though neither you nor I are experts in terms of the history of the Jawaharlal Nehru University and in terms of whether these claims are factually true or untrue, uh, but taking it at a, at, at a conceptual level, uh, there is in India, as the role of the university has become even more critical because of questions about rewriting history. Right, And uh, there is a strong sentiment that exists that history was written in a certain left-leaning way, uh, whether it is uh, Bipan Chandra's textbooks or NCRT, uh, and that hasn't really presented the whole picture, which is why you find somebody like a Vikram Sampat, whose book on Savarkar is, is seen as wildly popular for a, for a for a book of historic, for historical biography, because it seems to present an alternative viewpoint. Now we don't have to get into the merits of the work itself, but in terms of this constant quest of rewriting history and the role of the university in, the, in that process, how do you essentially see what is going on in India? Uh, because is it kind of the crumbling of the ancient regime in some sense uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, the, the last vestiges of a certain kind of way of thinking about and writing history, or is there something that is genuinely can be said about uh, the lack of alternate histories, uh, particularly looking at uh, modern Indian history here as our frame of reference? Yeah, well, that's a big and important question. Um, I mean, I suppose I would say, you know, a couple of things. One is that uh, you might be right, in fact, you probably are right, that the politicization of Indian universities began a while ago, perhaps in the 1970s, if not before, certainly by the time you have the emergency. Uh, and um, I'm not sure how much uh, good it has done, these universities. Now, in the West, too, universities often are, as it were, laboratories for the creation, the making of new political elites. Oxford is certainly the top one for the making of a new 
British elite, uh, so the Tory party, everyone comes, half the cabinet, if not more, comes out of Oxford. And we all know where they come. They come from the Billington Club, they come from the Oxford Union. And, but the, the university as a seedbed for politicians and politics has not so far uh, meant the destruction of university procedures uh, and if you will, physical violence in the university, uh, nor is, does it seem likely to do it. It's been institutionalized uh, uh, in such a way as not to interfere. Student politics does not interfere with curriculums and uh, classes and teaching and all the rest. Uh, it produces politics for the world outside. So the relationship between a university like Oxford and the British government is perhaps too close and too intimate, uh, but it is not premised upon the kinds of large scale uh, violence that we see with the state too intervening. Now, today the state does try to intervene into British universities and American ones uh, in order to determine who should and should not speak and, and, and all the rest, but it's nowhere like what has happened in India. So that's one thing to say, that it's not a question of forbidding politics in universities. Uh, the other thing uh, I'd like to say is that there's, there's something strangely uncreative uh, in the desire simply to reverse one party's, as it were, or one side's politicization of the university and make sure your side now does it. Um, that is simply perpetuating what was already not a very good idea uh, and exacerbating the problems uh, that are created. So you know, now you have textbooks written by someone with a quite, quite different view. You have student unions from a, supported by a different political party, et cetera. Um, you see this all over South Asia, not just India, where political parties enter into the university precisely because the university produces elites uh, and political elites. Uh, but this has sort of run uh, well beyond that process. Um, and it happens all over India all the time. To replace Gandhi with Ambedkar, for instance, is to do no favors to Ambedkar. It is simply to put him in the place vacated by Gandhi. It's meant to make him into, as it were, uh, the next Gandhi. Gandhi wins in either case. So when you replace as it were, left-wing uh, historiography, you know, left-wing textbooks with right-wing ones, the left-wing actually wins anyway because it has set the model. You are not creating your own model. Uh, so I find that kind of repetitive uh, form of overturning uh, intellectually uncreative and politically uh, um, doing uh, the very thing that, you know, the former underdog was complaining about uh, and making the situation even worse. Uh, so I suppose um, the question then becomes uh, is what kind of scholarship is produced by universities which are subjected to this sort of, these sorts of stresses and strains. Uh, and I have to say, speaking uh, personally, uh, and as someone who sees applications from India, uh, of students applying to Oxford, uh, that there has been a diminution, uh, both of the number and quality of applications from great public universities like JNU. Um, and how to explain that? I don't know. In part, perhaps this has to do with the emergence of new private universities, well-funded, better-funded private universities, less subjected to both state uh, or if you will, popular pressure. Um, uh, and if this is the case, then actually we need to think very seriously about what counts as scholarship, who gets to uh, be recognized as uh, a potential uh, good student at a university like Oxford or any other university around the world. So the consequences actually very grave, are very serious here. Uh, this is not simply an Indian story. Now, of course, the thing about India also is that um, uh, the law works very differently there, and you will know better than I, uh, uh, that most ordinary Indians, uh, in my understanding, would rather have nothing to do uh, 
with the courts or the police or the law. Uh, and the law is either used to uh, vexatiously to harass people or punitively by the state against uh, citizens. This has been the case from colonial times. That's right. Uh, so it, it, is a, it is an avenue of last resort, unless you're very rich and famous and uh, powerful, then you can, you can bend it to your, your purposes. Uh, so the um, student politics, violence on university campuses, etc., has a completely different relationship to the law in India than such a thing would have in the United States or Britain or Europe. Yeah, because if I were to just think out aloud, something like a Title IX in India would be completely toothless, as it would be, it would be symbolic. Uh, it would not lead to the kinds of problems that you're saying, which is vexatious claims, as in there might be some vexatious claims, uh, but it would, it would seemingly just not have any effect. Uh, is my prediction, uh, because the law most of the time doesn't work, and if it works, it works as a, as, as a, as a threat which is used by certain actors as in who are sort of on the right side of the law. Uh, and by that, I don't mean the right side, but I mean who can control the yeah. law or bend it to their own uh, wishes, uh, who will use it as a, as, as a threat. So I don't think that uh, there is any comfort for the afflicted uh, in terms of uh, that, that the law can bring. Uh, but I think we are almost out of time. But the the, the one thing that you said, as in in in, in relation to uh, politicization, as in Indian universities, as having having grown up in in West Bengal in the eighties and nineties, one constant refrain that I used to hear uh, was the was the criticism of the Communist Party for having politicized some great universities, um, and the and the criticism was that. Uh, students now don't study or produce scholarship as if they do politics. And I think that's, uh, that's quite clear from the way in which the presidency university used to function and the kinds of scholarship that it used to produce uh, and where it is now uh, in terms of the fact that there are individuals who are, who are plodding on nonetheless, uh, but it certainly seems to have, have dropped off the map. And I think student politics, as you said, it's uh, it's 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 a uh, it's seen as a way of capturing a new political elite that emerges. Uh, but I've always uh, had the sense that uh, the new political brigade in West Bengal copies the left in terms of trying to whether that's the Trinamool Congress, which has its own student bodies, which which want to capture presidency and the others and. Uh, uh, my sense is it's a process where hopefully we'll ultimately end up once we've done my parties and your parties and universities, we'll end up at a place uh, where, 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 where it will be politics for, the, for, for, for real reasons and not just for trying to capture the elite, but uh, whether we have any scholarship left at that time or not is, a, is, is going to be an open question. So, so one last question at the end, uh, given the fact that there is, uh, as a historian of uh, late colonial India, one of your one of the, my favorite books is *The Impossible Indian*, uh, where you've written so beautifully and perceptively about Gandhi. Uh, there is a sense today in India that this is only one side of the story, uh, and it is one side of the story because the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS were not major actors at that point of time, so weren't heard in the mainstream uh, to that extent. And consequently, their contributions, uh, and, and there were significant contributions made by several people towards the freedom movement. Of course, many members of the RSS were also members of the Congress, and, was, uh, and, and, and they were independently of their own right freedom fighters. But those have been glossed over. Uh, as, a, as a historian of late colonial India, uh, how do you see this claim? And where do you think scholarship should head in terms of presenting a picture of the Indian freedom movement that captures it in all its vitality and its complexity? You know, the thing that has, uh, you know, as a historian of India that has always struck me is how narrow 
uh, its remit has been for this period that you're mentioning. Uh, so I am guilty of this myself. You know, how many you know, books on Gandhi are there in the world? Uh, he deserves them, I would say. Nevertheless, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a deep groove by this point. Uh, so when you look at, you know, Sampat's biography of Savarka, for instance, what strikes me, what, whatever its own qualities or demerits are, um, the fact that it was the first substantial biography should shock us. Uh, there is one other one by Dhananjay Kikir, but it's actually not a biography, properly speaking. It's more of a timeline. Uh, and that, too, was in the 1960s. So if you will, the failure of the left or of the center, or however you want to describe it, has been to refuse to even look at these subjects and look at them critically. I'm not saying you need to write a kind of you know, praising biography or piece of scholarship on someone like Savarkar, uh, but to ignore him completely, to have not one, not one biography in decades of a man who was arguably connected in some way with Gandhi's assassination, not an unimportant figure, therefore, uh, if only for this reason, is astounding. Uh, now, either the liberals were embarrassed, uh, you know, they didn't want their portrayal of India as a wonderful, the world's greatest democracy, so to be sullied by these kinds of figures and names. Or if you were a Marxist, uh, scholars might have thought, oh, this is actually of no importance because, uh, you know, religion and communalism and Hindutva are simply uh, epiphenomena. In really, it's a story of class. So let's ignore this. Uh, like they ignored caste for so many decades. Uh, so on both sides, if you will, on the liberal or Congress side and on the Marxist or you know, CPI, CPM side, you have a kind of void where there should have been appropriately critical scholarship. Uh, and as a result, what you now have is, if you will, the right wing uh, producing its own, whatever the quality of that scholarship is, if you even want to call it scholarship. But by producing its own histories and biographies, it gets to set the debate on these figures who have been unjustly and unjustifiably ignored over more than 50 years. Uh, and that is a real failing. And it's a failing that needs to be reflected upon and considered. Uh, it's that which I think is more important a consideration than all of these other uh, 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 you know, claims, you know, they had control, now we had control. Well, that's politics. Uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, the problem is uh, the refusal to even entertain uh, an indubitably important part of India's history, even to criticize it. Uh, and you will see the same problem, of course, reappearing in the current dispensation which is why it isn't really a shift. Uh, it's a kind of uh, reversal that is not revolutionary. Uh, and that is the tragedy of it. Yeah, that's right. And I think it would be truly revolutionary if uh, folks today were not just writing about Savarkar, which they, which they must, uh, but also perhaps writing about Javier Elwin and, and writing about figures on the left, as in who perhaps have also not received their due Yes. Uh, given the fact that they have not been in the mainstream uh, in that sense, or Samunda or, 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 or other mm -hmm. figures of that nature uh, who, have, who have not received their due. And I think it, this is a very good point to end with. Uh, I, I read Sampat's book, and, and, and I felt, as you had written on his blog, that this is a serious biography. Now, people may disagree on, on several things. Uh, but, but the fact is, I think the larger question is that nothing was written. And because nothing was written, as in there was there was this obvious obvious gap, uh, which which needed to be filled, and 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 uh, 
sort of having done a lot of work on Article 370, I find S.P. Mukherjee as another figure of this kind, leading the Hindu Mahasabha, but being one with the Congress and the Hindu in the Constituent Assembly, then breaking ranks with them over Article 370. There's a lot of very interesting stuff going on there, uh, which has uh, which has been largely ignored. I think for Savarkar, except for one article by Ashish Nandi, I think that was, that was really... Uh, a critical article, but there was really nothing much else. So I think, as you said, that this is this is filling up the void. This is setting the terms of the debate. But I think it would only be a decisive break from the model set by the left or the centrist if there was scholarship, not just about uh, the Savarkars and Goldwalkers, but also about the Elwins and the Mundas and anyone else as who has been who has not been in the mainstream. And I think that would be truly breaking new historical ground. You never know. Maybe it'll happen. Uh, but thanks, Faisal. Thanks very much for your time. This has been a really engrossing conversation where we've traversed quite a few topics, I think fairly unstructured. Uh, but uh, it, uh, history has taught, or the brief history of podcasting has taught me uh, that unstructured conversations work best. Uh, so thanks very much, Faisal, uh, for, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Time for Clatter, our weekly quiz that's a bit tougher than clack. Last week, I'd asked you to name a judgment of the House of Lords, which ruled that a student of a school could wear a hijab, but not a jilbab. And this was a really landmark ruling and perhaps a way forward for the right to freedom of religion and balancing it with the right to education and equality. The answer is the famous case of R versus head teacher and governors of Denbigh High School in the UK. And the winner is Kaushik Chandrasekhara. Kaushik, congratulations. A free subscription of Disney Hotstar is on its way to you. Time for this week's quiz. So this week, since we are talking about universities, this university was founded on a seven acre plot, which in the 19th century had originally been purchased for setting up a meditation center and retreat. It soon gave way to a small school, which was called the Brahmacharya Ashrama, which started functioning in 1901. That was the kernel for one of the leading universities in India, which was built on a truly alternative oriental notion of what a university is. Which university are we talking about and who? was its founder. Do write in with your answers to justify and with illegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win a Disney Hotstar subscription. We're talking about free speech and education. And one of the things my mind goes back to is that final scene of Dead Poet Society. After all, what does it mean to think freely and for yourself? That's what Keating, the teacher, taught his students. And I hope we can inculcate some of that spirit today as well. Adjourned. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? Do you hear me? Oh, Captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warn you, sit down. Sit down. Sit down, all of you. I want you seated. Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keating.
Thank you, boys. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.